Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about The Cremation Fields, 2500 BC by Alan Moore. This is chapter two of Alan Moore's novel, Voice of the Fire. It tells the story of Northampton, England over the course of roughly 6,000 years. It's uh, a series of loosely connected novellas and short stories. Voice of the Fire was originally published in 1996. This story was nominated to us by one of our awesome Patreon supporters, uh, also along with the Waystation, which we just covered, but also with The Bleak Shore by Fritz Leiber and Hell is the Absence of God by Ted Chang. That's a story that I think we both really loved. And those two stories, The Bleak Shore and Hell is the Absence of God, beat this one out on the balloting. And so we've done them as Patreon episodes. And if you're interested in hearing those episodes and you haven't joined us on Patreon yet, make sure to check us out on patreon.com slash Media. There's more than just those stories on our Patreon account. We have so much great content there just waiting for you to check out. And as this episode is coming out, we are very, very close to finishing up at the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Of course, then we'll be launching into some bonus episodes that we'll do as well, things that are adjacent to or inspired by at the Mountains of Madness. So now's a really great time to to join us. And and yeah, we had a blast doing uh, some Sword and Sorcery by Fritz Leiber there. And also Hell is the Absence of God by Ted Chiang. That was my first time reading any Ted Chiang and it was uh, it was awesome. So totally worth checking out. And I hope you'll do that. But yeah, let's uh, let's turn our attention here. So yeah, The Cremation Fields, this is a novella. It's pretty long. Uh, so we're going to do a two-parter here. This episode is going to be the recap. Next time will be the discussion. This is our, our usual routine. If this, is your, if this is not your first episode listening to us, you know how we do this. So uh, let's get into it. Brandon, take us back to 2500 BC. Well, I'm going to start with a disclaimer, actually, <laughs> about the way I'm going to go about this recap. So this is a story that is just chock full of descriptive passages and strange interludes and dreams and lots of uh, flourishes, I suppose, on the plot, a lot of ornamentation. And if that's your thing, then I really recommend reading this chapter of Voices of the Fire. I am not going to linger too long on those elements in the recap, uh, just for the sake of the length of the episode. I'll be focusing on the plot stuff. So I guess, Glenn, you have a lot of heavy lifting to do. But, um, <laughs> let's just go right into the plot then. So the story starts with an image of something, quote, like a big white hand floating down a river. And then more moves us right into some dialogue. Two women are traveling together and they're going to the same place, or at least they're going in the same direction. One of the girls is the narrator, and the other is someone that the narrator has met on the road. So the road companion is headed to a place called Bridge in the Valley to see her father. And this girl, the companion, the one who's not the narrator, hasn't seen her father in a very, very long time, maybe ever, maybe since she was born. But now he's dying and he has sent to see his daughter again. One thing of note about this girl is that she wears these fancy blue beads as a necklace. And these beads, as she explains, were made from copper. So we're firmly in the Bronze Age here. In any event, the narrator is pretty interested in hearing this girl's story. And she asks whether or not this girl, her traveling companion, has seen her father since she was a child. And, you know, as we said, she hasn't. 
The father is a cunning man, it turns out, of a village, and he has lots of land and wealth, at least according to this girl. And maybe he doesn't have a son to pass his inheritance to, which is why the girl was summoned by her father. And all this is, you know, going on in dialogue. The girls are talking to each other. And once the narrator has all the information she thinks she's going to get from this girl, she attacks her with a knife and tortures her to get the girl's name and her father's name. And then the narrator kills this girl. And we realize that the non-dialogue portions of the text here, the descriptive passages, have taken place in the past. And the thing that we saw floating away in the river is Usin, the girl who was killed by the narrator. And now the narrator is going to steal Usin's identity. So she takes the fancy beads, she takes the girl's clothes and shoes, which are too small, and she makes her way towards Bridge in the Valley. Yeah, this is all grim. I mean, just right away in this story, we have torture. We've got uh, the cutting off of fingers and ears, doing this in order to extract information. And I do not like torture porn. I don't like body horror. But I have to say that I think Moore actually does this really well. He writes a, a simple paragraph with just three sentences, and and two of those sentences are actually sentence fragments, but somehow it's actually really, really effective. And in fact, maybe I should just read it. So here's what Moore writes. The ear. The thumb. Birds scatter up from reeds to sky in flapping blind alarm. And that's all that's all we get. And I think that's all we need though, really. I mean, it's, it's actually almost, you know, cinematic, right? In the way that we get this like cut to the birds here. It's it's really well done. I I was surprised by that. There's a lot of great technical craft in this story. I mean, I guess you can kind of expect that with Alan Moore, who's a master of technique, if nothing else. And yeah, we're going to get a little uh, Sherlock Holmes thing going on towards the end of the story, right. <laughs> where if it's your first time reading through the story, those images don't make a ton of sense. You can make sense out of them. But yeah, we we learn what these images mean by the time we get to the end of the story. Yeah. And that's also extraordinarily well done. And I guess what I mean when I say I'm surprised by it is not like I'm surprised Alan Moore writes good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I'm surprised that I found myself actually finding like body horror artful. That was the, that was the surprise right. for me. And I, I thought that was, uh, that was really interesting. That was really great. But I also have to say that this is essentially the same plot as Smeagol and Deagle, except it's blue beads and not the one ring. Right. <laughs> and um, of course, also it is shortly going to become the exact plot of the talented Mr. Ripley. But one more thing I want to say, Brandon, before we move on, is that this use of copper uh, does indicate Bronze Age, or it might indicate Bronze Age anyway. And uh, that is something that we'll see quite a bit of in this story. It's going to be a big part of the discussion episode as well. Great. Well, I will uh, hope our discussion is more you talking about what you know about history and me just learning. I guess we'll just wait till we get <laughs> That's there. That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before our narrator continues with her journey, uh, or at least the text continues with the narrator's journey to Bridge in the Valley, our narrator gives us a memory about her childhood. Her village was buried in ash somehow, and so everyone had to leave. And we're going to learn more about uh, this village burning to ash. Not, not a whole lot, but about the girl's relationship with her family and what's going on there. This is really a snippet, a kind of a tease. And the narrator is, it turns out, having this memory as she's walking along a track towards Bridge in the Valley. This whole story is really written in present tense, and there are a lot of scenes that intercut in ways that you sort of have to decode as you read. 
The narrator knows that the river is flowing in the direction of the valley. And so that means that the girl she killed is probably much further ahead of her on this journey. Um, Well, because the river is flowing faster than the narrator can walk. But that girl's dead, right? The girl she killed. And what kind of journeys do the dead make anyway? Well, I don't know. There's a lot of metaphysical questions this character has, uh, (laughs) not a lot of answers. Eventually, the narrator, who is now going by the name of Usin, arrives at the village or village, as it's written in the story. Outside of the village is a, and here I'm quoting, a, quote, torso garden. And what that means is that it's a bunch of human midsections on pikes. And this torso garden stands as a warning for ne'er-do-wells who are thinking about infiltrating Bridge in the Valley, I guess, to commit some sort of crime. And that's certainly not what our narrator is here to do. But uh, in any event, (laughs) the narrator is just thinking, what kind of name is Bridge in the Valley for a town anyway? And she does a bit of uh, observational humor here. And thinks that uh, inside of the walls, everybody just calls this place the village. And that bridge in the valley is a name that outsiders named it because the place they live in is actually the real village. That That's the place called the village. Right. Uh, he calls it the Carrick because it's a Carrick. That's his name for that type of thing. And it's the Carrick because it's the one closest to his home and he knows it best, right? I mean, Gandalf explained <laughs> all of this to us in The Hobbit. And yeah, I promise I will not at every break make a, uh, a Tolkien joke or attempt to make a Tolkien joke anyway. But uh, yeah, I wondered about this Ash business here in this uh, these flashback scenes that we get. It's certainly another really eerie description for more. Uh, in fact, here are a few lines of it that really, uh, really grabbed me. A darkness is upon the world, whereas day come and brings no light. The sun is rare and strange. Vein-colored skies at close of day, piercing and blanket cloud. Green shafts illuminate the skeletons of trees. Spines split and the ribs snapped off, bleached, twisting from the powder dunes. And well, I, I think that's just some remarkable writing. I mean, it's he's playing with grammar here, of course, as we talked about in the, the first chapter that we covered uh, quite a long time ago now, actually. Moore is continuing to do that sort of playing with grammar and syntax here. But that's a beautifully evocative description, an eerie description. It really is. And I have to wonder if a, a volcano went off or something like that, though. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, what caused so much ash to fall on the village. Uh, and maybe we'll we'll think about that if it comes up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I mean, she goes on to describe how this ash ruins their crops, ruins their livestock. And so the whole community has to leave. And she also tells us that this community is located in the Highland Mountains. That's a quote from the text there. And, you know, it's not clear to me what she means by that, right? That could just be the Lake District, right? Of course, because this is going to be relative, just like calling your village the village is, well, it's the only village you know, right? So what does Highland mean? What do mountains mean here? So yeah, could be the Lake District, might be Scotland. But it, it does seem to me, Brandon, yeah, that this ash is from a volcanic eruption. And so I think probably Scotland is is more likely here. And that's a really long journey, since we know that Bridge in Valley here is uh, this village with the torso garden, right? This is Northampton. It's in the Midlands. So this is hundreds of miles away if she's coming from Scotland. I mean, you know, it's still quite a long ways, even if she's coming from the Lake District, to be walking essentially by yourself, uh, you know, with without, you know, I don't know, petrol stations to stop at and get some Doritos <laughs> or something, right? I mean, this is a pretty serious undertaking. It really is. And, you know, we'll learn more about how she makes her way from place to place. But uh, one th- one thing that 
jumps out to me about this story is we kind of don't know what this character's ultimate goal is. And I wonder, you know, if that's going to uh, come into our discussion at all. Like we know what she wants immediately and in the short term and what she's doing in Bridge in the Valley, but to travel so long without some kind of ultimate purpose, without settling anywhere, it's a big question mark hanging over the story for me. It is. And and that will be the first thing that we talk about, actually. We'll be trying to make some sense of what the heck she's even doing in the world. Yeah. All right. So the narrator, as I said, we're going to just call her Usin from now on, or I am. She has reached the village gate. And as you would expect, she sees some guards there, some people. And one of the people there is an old man, and he's got a pretty serious tremor in his hands. And he's got black stains on his fingertips from something. Uh, Anyway, these guards ask Usin what she wants. And she says that she's there to see her father, Olin. So the old man, the one with the tremor in his hands and the black marks on his fingertips, takes Usin to see the village queen. And along the way, they talk about Olin, uh, who you know, also has a son named Garn, and Garn moved outside of town and doesn't really talk to his father. But the point here is that this old man, this gate guard, sees no family resemblance between Usin and Garn, and maybe even Usin and Olin. And so Usin says here that she takes after her mother. Then she gets to the queen, and this queen is fat. That's brought up a a huge number of times. And uh, the queen is also guarded by two men who are twins. And this is something that no one in the village has really seen or heard of before. But typically, they would have killed these boys at birth. The queen likes them, though, so she let them live. And now they're her guards, essentially, and uh, other things, too. Then Usin sees that at the foot of the queen, laying on a bier, is a heavily tattooed man who just appears to be wasting away. It turns out that this is Olin. And these tattoos make no sense to Usin, but she's intrigued by them nonetheless. I found this to be a really strange reaction to these twins. Uh, Twin births occur a little over 1% of the time, so this shouldn't be that unusual. Even uh, in pre-modernity, people should have encountered twins or at least the idea of twins before. And, you know, I mean, personally for me, just anecdotally, I know more than 10 sets of twins. And even if we allow for the identicalness of these people to be the source of the strangeness, that's still something that happens about one out of every 250 pregnancies in humans. Uh, so again, this shouldn't be some you know, weird, shocking thing, uh, like to think that something is actually wrong with the world. So I was genuinely confused about this reaction for a little while, in part because we get the metaphor of an oak that's lightning split used in the description of these twins or to explain the phenomenon of these twins anyway. And so for a while, I mean, like for several pages, really, I thought that maybe these were actually conjoined twins. They, they aren't. That becomes clear really clear eventually. But it was all just very confusing to me. This was, uh, for me, I think maybe the the weakest part of the actual wordsmithing here was just that this story wasn't clear enough for me to understand even what was happening here. It really took me out of the story also. Uh, One other thing that took me out of the story was like how Alan Moore is trying to deal with trade in this time period as well. And so I, I was like, if this was truly an isolated village, that would maybe make sense if there weren't travelers, but there are clearly travelers. These people have a torso garden to worn out, 
you know, the bad guys, but there's also trade going on. We learned that there's, you know, um, prostitutes and other sorts of things and other towns in the story. And so like, I just don't quite understand how Moore is conceiving of this whole world. I really understand how he thinks about Usin and her traveling and her getting to Bridge in the Valley. But to me, it didn't feel like a lot had changed between the 4500 BC story and the 2500 BC story in terms of any sort of uh, cultural growth or understanding uh, human knowledge being passed down, stuff like that. Well, we certainly will be talking about the world as Alan Moore has envisioned it here in the discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's just, I guess, a teaser. All right, well, let's let's return to the story then. Uh, Olin, as we saw, was laying at the feet of the queen on a on a bier. He is really just wasting away. Like, he is skin and bones. He's dying. And he speaks now for the first time about the upcoming sacrifice that is going to take place. And he tells the story of a hob man who was once called to sacrifice his own son. But when the time came to sacrifice him, the gods made him stop and told him to burn a pig instead. So uh, no more human sacrifice. And hey, maybe we've heard that story. That story made it 2,000 years, I guess, <laughs> between then and now. Uh, Usin now is caught in a memory of her past life. And she remembers when her father died from a bee sting, from an allergic reaction to the bee sting, while he and his family were fleeing the place they had lived due to the ashfall or you know whatever had happened there. But now we're going to cut back into the present. And now a big woman is picking up Olin, or she's rather grabbing the handles on the beer so that she can drag Olin back to his home. Usin here tries to imitate the voice of the girl she murdered, and she tells Olin that she's his daughter. On the way back to Olin's hut, Olin and Usin speak about her journey and about why she answered her father's summons. Her father summons. And Olin here is a little mean at first and says that Usin only showed up to get her hands on her father's treasure, just like her, you know, gold digging mother. That would be common parlance, I guess, today, but uh, that's the insinuation here in the text. <laughs> uh, but then Olin eases off when Usin threatens to leave. And he tells her that she'll have to stay with him until he dies. And Olin tells her, you know, why he summoned her, basically. And that's because Olin disowned Garn because Garn rejects the work that cunning men do. Garn believes in metalworking. He's, uh, I don't know, a materialist in a sense. Now Usin asks what is making Olin ill, and he tells her that he's sick because the village is sick. And he manifests the problems of, his, of the village on his own body. So, you know, like if the old rounds up on Beast Hill fall to ruin and neglect, then on my back the bones go weak as yellow stone and crumble where one scrapes against the other. So what we're seeing here is the belief in sympathetic magic, that literally Olin's body has some sort of sympathetic link with the village. And something about what Olin is talking about reminds Usin of her previous life, where she was essentially a scoundrel and a con artist. I mean, she still is, but right now she's pretending to be Usin. She's taking on that role of the daughter. And basically, what we're getting here is uh, one last job plot. Usin is here in Bridge in the Valley to do one last job before she can retire. 
Right. And, and and what could possibly go wrong? Right. I mean, it's 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 classic. Usually Danny Glover's in the in the role yeah, here when exactly. I'm watching movies like this. But uh, yeah, we actually even do learn about a few of her previous scores here. Uh, one time she traded bags of dirt for a whole pig by putting a layer of grain on top of the dirt so that people would think that it was a whole bag of grain. Uh, also, she sold dog stool wrapped in bark as some type of preventative medicine, but also she's just murdered a lot of people and stolen their stuff. And so she's not uh, not a character I think that we can find a lot of sympathy for. I mean, this, this story starts off with her doing exactly that, but nonetheless, she's the protagonist and that's something we'll want to think about in the discussion. But before we carry on, Brandon, I want to elaborate on a, a few things that you've brought up. I mean, you joked, obviously, right, that this is a reference here to the first chapter, uh, Hobbs Hogg. Uh, we'll talk about how the community remembers that story in the discussion episode. But then there are also Olin's tattoos. Now, these are not tattoos of anything. They're not bears or snakes. Uh, they're not pistols or the Klingon Empire symbol. They're just <laughs> lines and swirls. And then the last thing to point out here before we move on is that metalworking is new, right? And so Garn is rejecting the entire culture of his father and his community by refusing to take up the position that he is supposed to. And it's a really, really important position. And we'll talk more about all of that in the discussion episode as well. Yeah, I can't I can't wait. There's so much going on in this story. And yeah, as we said, this recap is is really focused on the plot because there's a lot of plot to this story too. <laughs> we gotta, gotta pick something to, to to recap here. Uh well anyway, now kind of the whole cast is at Olin's hut. You have Olin and Usin and Herna. And that's the woman who's dragging Olin around. And Usin looks around Olin's hut and sees that Olin has basically got a curiosity shop's worth of oddities in there. Uh, you know, the Herna is told to set Olin down at this point because he's tired. And then Usin goes to bed. And Usin, as she's in bed, can hear Herna and Olin talking from her room. But she's really exhausted. And she is super comfortable in her bed and all the furs she's covered in. So she falls asleep and she dreams. She dreams of the past. She dreams of the ash field. She dreams she's falling through it. Then she wakes up and dreams again of the girl she's killed. The real Usin, really. Well, now it's morning. Uh, the narrator hears the name Usin being called, and oh, yep, that's her name. She better respond to it. So <laughs> she gets up, and she goes to her father, who is still lying on his, quote, raft of twigs. Uh, the two eat fish together for breakfast, and then Olin tells Usin that they're going to leave Herna behind for the day so that he can teach his daughter to have the cunning of the land. So now Usin is going to have to drag Olin around all day in order to learn his, ex his secrets, really where the treasure is. And this is an awful experience. The narrator isn't really keen on doing this sort of labor. I guess she's the type of person who takes shortcuts like murdering people for rings or grave digging, stuff like that. In any event, she goes along with this because it's the last score. They take a tour of the village and some of the surrounding land. And then finally, Olin brings up the vaults and the treasure paths that are hidden and secret. And this is why Usin is here. She really wants to know about this stuff. But it would be suspicious, she thinks, if she were too pushy. So she doesn't push and 
Olin doesn't say anything more about it. But at this point, Usin daydreams about taking all of the treasure and becoming the queen of her own village. Right. So the, the reason that Usin has to push Olin around herself is that Herna is going off today to worship with her people. Herna also has been talking about a god that swallows us and then rebirths us to live anew among the gods. And these ideas, this religion, this is not the official religion of the village. It's it's not the religion of which Olin is the village priest or cunning man is the, the term that's being used here in the story. And so clearly there is lots of change happening here in 2500 BC, right? We've got the, the tech, technology that we've already encountered, the metallurgy, and now we've got this religious change happening where people are converting to this new religion. Herna is one of them. She's proselytizing this religion, even to this priest of the older religion here. So yeah, we're going to take stock of, or try to take stock of anyway, all of this in the discussion episode. Yeah. It's really fascinating to me, this, this fire religion that uh, Herna follows. And I, I'm really excited to talk about it because, hey, this story is called The Cremation Fields and there's lots of fire imagery in here. And <laughs> I don't know, maybe we'll wonder whether Olin uh, at the end of the day, really believes in the fire religion more so than his own. In any event, Olin and Usin have finally come to the bridge in the valley. You know, that's what the name of the village is for outsiders. And Olin tells Usin that they need to stop. And here he asks her about her fancy beats. Usin wasn't expecting this. So she tells him what she remembers about what Usin said about how they were forged. It's a little bit of you know, whisper down the lane. Uh, she embellishes a little bit, but all of this ends up working in her favor. At this point, though, there is a commotion uh, at the bridge, which saves her from having to explain further or ramble on <laughs> and uh, reveal herself. Uh, but Usin is kind of caught wondering about why Olin has asked her about the beads. Maybe he asked her about her beads because he wants her to ask him about his tattoos. And so she does. She says that she can't make sense of them. But Olin says that they make sense, absolutely. And they are called his crow designs. And this is all just too many riddles for Usin. She has no idea what anything means in this village. But before the father and fake daughter can talk any further. The men at the bridge uh, are hooting and hollering because something is caught in the river at the bridge, uh, which is built on beaver dams, and they're fishing it out. But actually, this isn't so fortunate because what's there is a body that the men have found, and they take it out and they lay it on the grass. And the body is, as we might guess, absolutely the real Usin. She got snagged in the beaver dam under the bridge. And now Olin tells Usin, the fake Usin, to take him to the body so that he can examine it. And when he gets to the body, he tells the men surrounding it that he was expecting trouble at the bridge today because there was blood in his stool. And now Usin knows, knows that Olin is a, as much of a con artist as she is. She, he's just made this up uh, because if he had blood in his stool in the morning, she thinks he would have mentioned it earlier. And now she wonders, you know, whether or not maybe she is a lot like Olin, whether she could maybe take on this role, whether Olin is more like a father than her real father was. Anyway, this body shows evidence of torture. For instance, its throat has been cut and its thumb and ear have been removed. 
And Olin wonders why any of this happened at all, because the girl has not otherwise been interfered with. So who would torture someone and not do more to them? Uh, And Olin orders the people that are around him, the guards who found it, the people who found it, not to move the body. And then he and Usain leave. And Olin explains to Usain that they are going to examine the body to ensure that there are no signs of plague, and then they'll bury the body. And this is part of the duties of being a cunning man. So Olin and Usain get back to the hut. Herna and Olin speak about like philosophical stuff and metaphysical stuff for a little bit, uh, more about the fire gods, I suppose. Usain takes a nap and thinks a lot about theological questions, really namely about the problem of suffering if the gods are real. Yeah, this is a pretty great section here, actually, this this thinking about theodicy. And uh, I'm just going to read the whole thing because I think it's awesome. There are no spirit women in the trees. There are no gods below the dirt, else that they be as daft as Herna. People all are born with no more why to it than some poor sagging field girl shows her arse off in the high weeds, and there's scarcely better reason in the dying of us neither. Where is there a god that strikes us down with venom from a trampled bee? Who puts us in this place, then floods the crops that there is not enough to feed us with? drops ashes from the sky, and strikes our cattle blind. If it be gods, they have queer sport. And yet, in every village, there are fat-faced little men and sickly girls who scourge themselves and fast to please some spirit bear, or else a tree they fancy speaks with them. How can the gods demand starved ribs and last-striped backs above the suffering that they already fashion for us? If we in this world are cruel by harsh necessity, how much more wicked are the gods who want for nothing yet torment us to the death. Such things there may not be. It is not gods that welcome us beyond the grave, but only worms. So this is a pretty bleak place to be, right? This uh, this worldview here. But this actually, I think, does let us sympathize with our narrator, who up to this point, for me at least, Brandon, has been clearly the sociopathic villain of this story, right? She's not someone I'm rooting for. I want her to get caught. I want her to get found out. But here... You know, I sympathize with her a little bit. We see a cynical atheism that is rooted in her very real experiences in a harsh world that clearly is not well governed. And of course, also, I should point out that this atheism is now the third religious view that we have in this story, all of which Moore is just giving us in really only small, tiny, oblique doses. But I've been really enjoying all of that material. Yeah, it's really great. This this bit of atheism here does not endear me to our protagonist in any way, uh, even though it's born of traumatic experiences, you know, the death of her father, the ash falling on the village, all of this stuff that lead her to kind of curse the gods, uh, because it comes out in, in a way that seems to scorn the people who do believe these things. And so I really still don't like the protagonist, even though she's suffered a little bit because of her just absolutely, uh, I don't know, dismissive attitude towards the people who are around her. I guess she's your kind of classic lone wolf type character who's just out on her own and thinks everybody's dumb for for having beliefs or even living in a community, you know? Right. But of course, really what's happening here is that she's feeling left out, right? And this is something we'll want to talk about in the discussion episode to try to puzzle out why she has had to resort to being the talented Mr. Ripley, like instead of doing something else in this world. But clearly, I think there's some 
deep down desire to actually be welcomed someplace, to be included someplace. And so, uh, you know, she's kind of taking her ball and and going home here. And so, yeah, I don't like her anymore at this point either, but <laughs> we can at least see her as someone who is um, uh, dealing with some trauma, dealing with some, you know, some deep rooted psychological problems here that are the result of, of living in a harsh world, feeling abandoned, all these tragedies that have happened to her. These are, just to be clear, not not the best ways. They're not even good ways to go about dealing with that, I think, in any world. <laughs> but it really, uh, I think she's a, a fairly well-rounded character for all that. Yeah, she is. I mean, she's a great character. And I think the, what you just said uh, about her the kind of yearning to belong somewhere, we saw that her desire is really to be queen on some level, which is to force people to accept her. But at the other other end of that spectrum, I think this next scene coming up is my favorite scene in the book um, because it she doesn't realize that she does fit in kind of with with her brother, which is who we're going to meet right now. Usin goes now to visit Garn, uh, who was the real Usin's brother, who's the dead girl laying in the village. And Usin contemplates the idea that maybe her age like epoch, I mean, not like her age in years, the age in which she lives has reached its peak and the world is ending. So she thinks that, and then eventually she gets to Garn's hut and Garn is a metal worker and they have a conversation. Garn has absolutely no respect for his father, the cunning man, and all of his father's painted barks and all these ways of knowing. Furthermore, Garn wants nothing to do with his father's wealth, and he talks about it as though the, the the treasures are cursed. And treasure here has a couple different meanings, which I'm sure we'll take up. All that Garn wants to do is work on his metal projects, and that'll be that. And there's more to what's going on here, really. We hinted at it a little bit. Uh, Garn, for instance, is really critical of the philosophy of cunning men or hob men. He says, if all his, you know, his father's, the cunning man's wisdom is mine then metal monitoring's my craft no more. If all his thoughts are my thoughts also, then why he is me and me a Habaman, just like him, left having no thoughts of my own. These thoughts, they are not even his, nor yet his father's, nor his great sire's. They are old as hills, these notions in him, that shape every deed of his word. It is as if the old man and the old men come before him are all one, one self, one way of seeing, single and undying through all time. It is not natural. And basically, Garn really doesn't like the idea that all things are represented by the Hobman's mind and body, which would include him, which would make him irrelevant. The old man cannot literally be a village. After all of this, I don't know, conflict with Garn, Anusin kind of believes this because she's there to scam (laughs) the the (laughs) cunning man out of all of his money and treasure. And so she fit right in with her brother. Uh, So Usin leaves Garn thinking that, you know, he's not really actually going to tell her where the treasure is. He's got his own way of life. And she returns to the village. Turns out there was a big fire that had taken place while she was gone. It's Put, been put out and nobody died. Uh, but a bunch of people were displaced from their homes. The village was turned to ash. I don't know. Some image repetition is taking place here. But what really matters is that there is now a big burn on Olin's chest. Even though he was nowhere near the fire that had taken place, 
uh, where the, I don't know, village was, where the group of houses were in the East Field, that's where the burn is on his chest. And that's where the village is represented on his body. So I don't know. Olin's in a lot of pain, I guess. And Herna and Usin have a moment to talk while Olin is dealing with this burn. And we've hinted at a lot of this already, but Herna's not a fan of the village gods. And she wants Usin to change things up a little when Usin becomes the cunning man of the village. And Usin's offended by this, kind of more and more becoming the daughter, the dutiful daughter than she wants to be. And she goes to bed. Okay, it's a new day. And Usin wakes up screaming. And then she realizes that she's just hungry. So she steps out of the hut to get breakfast. But instead of a delicious bowl of fish, she finds the dead girl's body on the ground outside of the cunning man's hut. And now that she looks more closely at the body, she can see that there are green stains around the girl's neck. And she wonders what those are from. And, you know, who can say? In any event, Olin is out here giving the body a closer inspection in part so that, uh, you know, Usin can watch him and learn how to inspect a body for the plague because uh, Usin is going to have to take, as we mentioned, on the duties of the medical examiner for the village when Olin dies. Uh, Olin engages in some, you know, ratiocination, some Sherlock Holmesing about what, you know, when the girl was killed and he speculates about the reasons why she was killed and Usin feels that what they think happened to the girl will clear her from suspicion of the crime. So when Olin thinks the girl died, uh, that's way off. So, you know, Usin can say she wasn't anywhere near that area when the girl was killed. Um, but what is really going on here in the text is that Moore is emphasizing the green stain on the girl's neck. And Olin concludes the investigation by saying that the girl hasn't been exposed to the plague so that they can bury her. And it's at this moment that Usin realizes that Olin is no mere con artist here, conning the village. In fact, he's very intelligent, and she's a little concerned by this because now she really feels like she can get found out and maybe she should just leave town. But she really wants to know where the treasure is, so she hangs in there. The twins uh, take this murdered girl and bury her. Olin scatters dog teeth on the grave and Usin asks him about it. He says he puts dog teeth on the grave so that the dog spirits can guide the girl through the underpaths in the village of the dead. And this leads Usin to thinking about these hidden paths. And so she brings up these trails that lead to the vaults of treasure. Do only dead men and Olin know of these paths? Yes, they do. Uh, but also Tunny knows it in his fingers. Now, Usin doesn't know who Tunny is, but that's going to have to wait because Olin is actually super really dying now. and He hasn't shared his most important secret. Uh, Olin's not really worried about this uh, because he can speak to Usin from beyond the grave. And right now, there are more important things to attend to, like before Olin even shares the gift, he wants a gift from Usin, something that's hers to take with him when he dies, which, like I said, he's like really actively dying. So Olin asks for Usin's fancy beats, and Usin takes them off, and this causes Olin to weep. He demands that Herna come to tend to him, and he sends Usin away 
So Usain goes to bed. Right. When she takes off the beads, Olin doesn't take them from her. He he lets her just hold them in her hand and he stares at her throat and then he weeps. But it, it's not just that he weeps. O- Olin also says, my daughter, oh, my daughter, while he's weeping. And it is clear to us, at least, that he knows now that Usin is an imposter and that the woman they've just buried is actually his his daughter because that body had marks around the neck from wearing copper for a long time. And this woman in front of him does not have those marks. But Usin doesn't realize this. She doesn't know anything about copper, right? This is all new to her. This is all strange to her. She can't know this, which means that she does not realize that she really has been found out at this point. Right. Yeah. She's been found out. And uh, we are right at the end of the story. So let's just knock this out here. Uh, So the next day, Usain gets up and Olin is dead. And Herna is with Olin. So Usain can only think about getting the treasure and getting out of town. So she asks Herna who Tani is. And it turns out that he's the old gateman with the stained fingers and the tremor. Ah, see, everything's coming together now. Uh, So Usain runs around the village in search of Tani. Uh, Turns out it's the night of the pig sacrifice. So there's lots of chaos and fires and carousing everywhere. Tani isn't at the pig sacrifice, which Usain witnesses. And this is, it's a really creepy moment in the story. They kind of burn an effigy of a boy. Eventually, Usain finds Tani. And she tells him that Olin told her that Only he knows about the secret paths or knows them, not just about them. But Tani says he doesn't know what she's talking about. It turns out he was the tattooist for the village until he developed a tremor. And Olin made him, Tani, tattoo Olin over and over and over again. Um, So that's what Olin meant when he said Tani knows in his fingers. Tani had gotten the designs for Olin's tattoos from these designs that Olin had painted on bark, and these were the crow designs. And now Usin knows what Olin's tattoos were. They were the secret paths that were a literal bird's eye view of the village and the surrounding land. So Usin has to get to Olin's body now. And as she's leaving, she sees Chani gesture to his neck in reference uh, to her neck. And, you know, he does this, he gestures to other men. So Tani is wondering what Usin has on her neck, but she has too many things to deal with right now. So she puts together some things that Herna said about Olin's burial and realizes that Olin is going to be set on fire. And of course, that means his tattoos will be destroyed and that Usin will never find the treasure. So she runs to the place where the fire is, where she thinks Olin is being burned, but she's too late. And this is what Moore writes of Olin. He sits erect upon his burning throne, shrunk to a hideous charcoal infant by the flames. His blackened sockets stare as if to scry the smoke for messages, for intimations of reprieve. Uh, In his hand is uh, Usin's fancy beads, and the ash that Olin has generated from being burned is blowing around, including his skin, a piece of which falls on Usin's arm. And here's how the story ends. It breaks against my wrist and falls to dust, caught by the wind to scatter over the cremation fields. And so Usin is standing in ash once more. 
Moore brings this story full circle, which is uh, totally awesome, though I'm going to start off the discussion episode next time actually by speculating about what happens next in the narrator's story. But before we close out this episode, I do want to make clear that Olin's body was not supposed to be burned, right? His religion practices inhumation, uh, burying people in the ground, but Herna's religion practices cremation, burning bodies. And so what happened here is that at some point during the course of this story, Olin asked Herna to cremate him. And presumably, at least my interpretation of this, Brandon, and you might disagree, is that this is something that happened once Olin started to suspect and possibly even realized that Usin wasn't actually Usin. And so he's asked to be burned here so that this imposter who murdered his daughter won't be able to use his tattoo map, right? So that the the map is destroyed. And if he's had his daughter taken from him, at least the person who did that won't get his treasure as well. That that's my understanding. Yeah, when he sends Usin away and uh, speaks to Herna, he's saying, "You have to burn my body when I die." I'm not even convinced there's any real treasure. I suppose we'll talk about that <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. our discussion episode. But um, yeah, absolutely. That that's that's my understanding of the story as well. Well, I think uh, we're both pretty excited to get to our discussion episode. There's a lot that we are going to talk about. So that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. And yeah, next time we're going to be back with a discussion of this story, something I certainly am very, very eager to go do. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.